Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We have been in the study of apostasy and the New Testament book of 2 Timothy, but now as we enter into the two weeks of Palm Sunday and Easter, class teacher Doug Brady brings us this lesson on the happenings during this time. Today we will look at Palm Sunday and all that it stands for and what was occurring on the days just before the crucifixion. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorn Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We begin our time at about 9 a.m. with fellowship and preparation, and Doug begins the lesson at about 9.15. Our class is large and excited about the careful presentation and information that Doug has gleaned from his study. And each week we welcome new visitors and members to our class. We would love to see and meet you at some time when you are in the area. Well, I see that Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom of the Believer's Bible class. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. Let's talk about Palm Sunday just a second, because Palm Sunday really is a special day in a number of respects. Number one, Palm Sunday was a day prophesied about by Daniel the prophet. He said what would happen on that day, and he said exactly when that day would occur, something around 180,000 days into the future from when the decree went out. In addition to that, that prophecy was made over 700 years ago. That was the day that Jesus came and fulfilled the prophecy proclaiming that he was the king of Israel the Son of God, the Messiah, and the King of Israel. That was also the day that he announced the horror of what would happen on 69 and 70 A.D. because of the rejection of the Messiah. And can you imagine the great rejection and disappointment so many in Israel who were believers felt because their nation had forsaken the Messiah. So, Palm Sunday has become really a a day of preparation for the greatest and most far-reaching sacrifice in human history. Now, Don, this is a question for you. D-O-N? Yes. What what day of the week was Palm Sunday on? It was on a Sunday. Very good. I'm glad you got that. (laughs) Every once in a while, I throw him a softball. What day of the week, Don was Easter, the resurrection occur. What day of the week was that? That was on a Sunday. All right. Now, what day of the week, Don, did Jesus, was Jesus killed or murdered? Thursday. Now I'm asking Don. Uh, I, I didn't hear it. Thursday. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. So it's a day of, of preparation, and I think we need to look at this, and we need to see. I believe it's only fitting today to look carefully at what happened that evening, the evening that Jesus turned himself into authorities. And you say, wait a second, turned himself into the authorities? No, he was arrested, wasn't he? There was an armed posse. You know what I really think that was? It was a lynch mob. That's what it was, a lynch mob. But no, he turned himself in. How do I know that? I would bet we need to look at John chapter 18, starting in verse 4. So Jesus knowing, you know, before we read God's word, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we can spend here today, and I pray that you'll bless this lesson. I pray that you'll help us to understand what you're trying to say to us. There is so much packed in this portion of Mark chapter 14. I pray that you'll help me to unlock it and open it up and share it with my friends here today, and that I can be accurate in dividing your word of truth, and we can see what it is that you want us to know. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So Jesus, knowing that all things were coming upon him, went forth and said to them. Now, this is when Judas showed up and with the posse, so to speak. And he said, whom do you seek? And they answered him, said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. Now, do you notice any difference in that word he there from the rest of the verse? It's in italics. What does that mean? It's not in the original language, but the translator thought it would help you to understand it if they added it in. So if it's not there, what did he just say? I am. And what is that? The name of who? Yahweh. The holy covenant-keeping God. This is the name of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he said, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. It was like somebody punched them or pushed them, and they fell backwards to the ground. Now, I have found, Bill, let me ask you a question. Bill's a deputy sheriff, and is it normal procedure if you're going to arrest somebody to lay down on the ground before you do? <laughs> I have found that tends to make you rather vulnerable. <coughs> no, I'm talking about you going down. Now, you don't ever lay down on the ground when you're trying to arrest somebody. But that's what happened. It wasn't by their choice, though. And Jesus displayed his power just by saying his name, I am. Now, some people will say, no, wait a second. That's the name of God the Father. That's not the name of the Son. Well, when was that name spoken? It was spoken out of the burning bush, right? On the top of Mount Horeb. When Moses turned aside to go up there and see that, who does the Scripture say was burning in that bush and spoke to him? The angel of the Lord. Who is that? None other than Jesus of Christ. And so... Judas also was betrayed, and therefore he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus Nazareth. And he said, I told you, I am. 
So if you seek me, let these others go to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. He turned himself over. He didn't have to go with them. He could have left them there on the ground and they could have walked away. But Jesus knew what was going on and what was important. Now, let's look at the preparation for facing the lynch mob. Jesus and the disciples had been in the upper room and they were just leaving and we pick up their leaving in Mark 14, verse 26. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be, shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now, does Jesus know where they're going? Does he know what's going to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane? Yes. And so the first thing he asked them to do as they were leaving was what? Pray. Pray. Nope. Pray. Sing. Sing a hymn. Worship through music. That is what he wants us to do in preparation for confrontation. Worship. That's the way he wants it done. You see, he wanted that, singing the hymn, praising God. Do you remember the story of Jehoshaphat that's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 20? In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat the king is brought the news. There's this massive army that greatly outnumbers whatever we can muster, and they're coming to destroy us. And what does Jehoshaphat do? He calls a prayer meeting... And what does he put with that prayer meeting, have everybody do? Fast. He has everybody he calls to fast. And they are praying, and they are fasting, and then what happens? He prays, and God speaks to a man in the audience, and the man stands up and says, this is the answer. You're going to defeat them. And so what does he do? What does the king do? Now, I would never do this if I was the king, I don't think. But the king says, muster the army, you're going to march out, but I'm going to have the choir lead you singing. I would never put the choir at the point of the spear. That's just my military strategy. But it wasn't his, and God blessed that, and the, they went down praising the beauty of holiness, and the enemy just defeated themselves. But before the confrontation, there was worship. And you can see that. You see, consider what's going on here and what Jesus knew. The disciples were all about deserting him. And Jesus was soon going to be cruelly executed. But he insisted on a praise song to start this event. You know what? When we find difficulties, even if we find it difficult to praise God with a song in your heart, that tells you something. If when you're facing difficulties and you find it difficult to praise God with a song in your heart, it may be a clear sign that your focus is not on God, but your circumstances. You better get your focus back on God and away from your circumstances. How many times has God come to us and said, well, aren't you okay, Doug? Well, under the circumstances, I... What are you doing under the circumstances? Get out from under there and let me take care of this. So, also Jesus made in this passage 
several short-term predictions that I want you to see. Several short-term predictions. Number one, the shepherd will be struck down. Who's the shepherd? Jesus. Who's the sheep in this? The disciples. Shepherd, that's number one. Number two, wait, before we go on, let's look at this. He says, I will strike down the shepherd. Now, that's a little interesting. We notice that the result of striking down means that the sheep are going to be scattered. But I want to ask you this question. Dawn, can you tell me who strikes down the shepherd? The Father. Oh, you mean God the Father struck down the Son? Who's offering the sacrifice? The Father is for your sin. He's offering His Son as the sacrifice. Do you see that? God, if you look in Zechariah chapter 13, I think it's verse 7, you will find exactly that is what it says. The Lord of hosts is the one who strikes down the shepherd. And so you begin to see that. So that's the first prediction. Number two, the second, that he will die that night. That night he tells him, I'm going to die. Number three, he tells him, I will rise from the dead. And then he says, after I rise from the dead, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. In Galilee. Where would they think it would be in Galilee? Well, real simple, the lake. That's where they always would meet, all around that lake. That's where Peter's mother-in-law lived, there in Capernaum. But anyway, he made those four predictions. Did they come true? Yes, they did. Now, as we seek to follow the Lord, it seems to me that many times circumstances seem to conspire together to strike us down or to cause us to fall away from the Savior. I have shared with you times when I have fallen away, when he's told me something he's wanted me to do. Nevertheless, you know, we didn't initiate the circumstances usually. They just all of a sudden occur. But nevertheless, they end in failure. You know, all 11 of these disciples, when you say, remember, it's not 12 because Judas is gone. All 11 of these disciples had spent well over three years in the physical presence of their Lord and Savior, and they're going to desert him? You know, I have asked myself before, I could ask myself, if someone asks you to explain to them the gospel, you would say no, Doug? And I've done that. And I've shared that with you. And it still grieves me that I would do something like that. I imagine you're going to see Peter. He's going to say, I would never do that. Never do that. Peter... He will boast that he would never, we'll see it in a minute, he would, would never fail God, he would never desert him, but we all know what happened. But their failure, we need to come to understand, was inevitable. Why? Because in Zechariah, he predicted it. God predicted this is what's going to happen. You all will desert my son. How could Zechariah predict that? Because the Lord God knew exactly what would happen on that fateful night and how it would end up. And since he knew, he made provision for those men. He made provision for those men in spite of their shortcomings. Because you see, he also knew the day 
that when the Holy Spirit was mixed to their faith, they would all be changed and they would become fearless and they would perform miracles and they would heal the infirmed and they would preach the gospel with great power. You see, Jesus sees well beyond our failures to what he's going to be able to do in our lives. You know, sometimes when failure comes, it's as a surprise to us. And because of that, we tend to think it's a surprise to God. Such is not the case. You see, our God is just as aware that we will fail him as he was of those early disciples. That's the reason he predicted it through Zechariah. So we could know he knew about it ahead of time and it just let it happen the way they were going to do it. And then he can say to us, I know when you're going to fail, Doug. I know when you're going to fail, Don. I know. And because of that, I can make preparation for it. That's what he wants to do. He wants to make preparation and has made preparation for our upcoming failures. Isn't that comforting? You see, if you're facing challenges that seem so overwhelming and are discouraged, we need to remember, God has prepared for them. Look in, look in 2 Corinthians 10, 13. It speaks of this in a way. 1 Corinthians, excuse me. No temptation has overtaken you such as common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. His promise. He's there. He's there for you. There is a way of escape. If you don't take it, he's made provision for you. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. Now, do you remember that fourth prediction? I'm going to go ahead of you into Galilee and meet you there. I think that promise is absolutely pregnant with meaning. We need to come to see what's going on here. You see, God never sends us into a situation all by ourselves. We may think we're all by ourselves, but we are not. We may feel that way, but he's always there ahead of us. Do you remember the nation of Israel? Here they were wandering around in the Midian wilderness, not really knowing where to go or what to do, but who was always leading them? A pillar of fire by night? A cloud by day? It was a column of clouds by day? He was always there telling them direction to go. In fact, when those three guys, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, or maybe you know them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they fell to the floor of that furnace after being thrown in, who was there waiting for them? Get up, guys. I got some things to tell you. They got to spend an hour in there talking to the Lord. Man, wouldn't it be cool to have just, even just an hour to spend talking to the physical person? Okay, Jesus, I have this question, this question. How do you interpret this? What does this really mean? We would just have so many things. And yet we probably wouldn't ask those questions. We'd just fall down on our knees and want to kiss his feet. Yes. I've heard it described as the faith rest drill where you have a Bible promise, and then when persecution comes in, you rest on the promise. The faith rest drill. I like that. And the faith rest life. And, and that's the way we should be living. And we need to learn to rest on God's promises because they are absolutely reliable. So, 
the Lord, we need to be confident that the Lord always precedes us into any situation, into any encounter. And even if you're going through a difficult or confusing time, know that the Lord has gone before you and made provision for you. That's the promise of this prediction. Now, verse 29. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, No, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. Now, let me ask you this question. Did Peter really mean what he was saying when he said that? Yes. I think absolutely he did. Then why didn't he successfully follow out his promise? He lacked the spiritual strength to stand at the time of critical impasse. He lacked it. Did he gain it after Jesus was raised from the dead in those next few days? No. Don't you think he didn't understand really what they were... Don't you think the disciples didn't really understand? No, I think he did because he said, I'll even die with you. Uh, if I have to die, I'll die alongside you. But that's what it means. He was carrying a sword and thinking that there's going to be one last battle and I'm going to defend you to the last. I heard a preacher one time who described it as this. If you looked at Peter, he was like a box. And that box was full of sand and gravel and water. You tilt it this way, it sloshes all down here. You tilt it this way, it sloshes all down here. No permanency, no anything. And that's the way Peter was. Until the Holy Spirit entered his heart. And then it was like putting cement in the box, and he really became the rock. And that's the way it was for Peter. He meant it, but he couldn't do it because he didn't have the strength and the fortitude yet. Now, verse 32. And they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. Now, I want you to think about that just a second, that statement. If we were going somewhere... Uh, let's say, now I, I'm not making any comparison to Jesus uh, or, or anything, but let's say we were over in Israel and Amir Zafadi was taking us on a little tour. And he said, you know, some things are happening. You sit here. I'm going to go over here and pray. What do you think he really thinks we should be doing while we're sitting there? Right. Absolutely. It's really that simple. Uh, the disciples understood that. And do you think they prayed some that night? Yep, I do. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before the rooster crows try... No, wait, I messed up. He said, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, the three closest people on the earth to him. And he began to be very distressed and troubled. And, they, and he said to him, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here... And keep watch. And he went a little ways beyond them. And he fell to the ground and began to pray. That if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will. Now, at this point, 
Jesus told his disciples he was going to pray, and he took his three closest friends with him. Then he told them something. And this is really a very unusual situation, and we need to come to see it. He said, I'm distressed, and I'm troubled, and I'm distressed, and I'm troubled. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Now, that seems like a rather serious statement to me. And if most of you told me that, some of you told me that, I'd probably think you were exaggerating just a little bit. But when Jesus says it, he doesn't exaggerate. He knows exactly. You know, if some of you told me, I said, well, you may not really be in touch with your heart that well. Is that Jesus? That he's not in touch with his heart? Absolutely not. Of course, he knows exactly what is going on. Well, what do these words really mean? I'm telling you, the English softens it. The Greek, if you look at the word distress, ek thumbeo, it means to throw into terror, to alarm thoroughly or to terrify. Jesus said, I'm terrified. Second word, troubled, adamoneo. It means great distress or anguish. These words are extremely strong words, and we need to understand that. And Jesus then instructed his close friends to watch. Well, what does that mean, to watch? What should they be watching for? Well, Gregorio, Gregorio means to give strict attention to, to take heed lest through some remission or indolence, some destructive calamity suddenly overtake one. He's saying, this is a serious time. I need you watching with me. And this is the way that really Jesus spoke of prayer. And he comes and he says these things. Now, I want you to think about a question I think we rarely ask ourselves. And that is this. Who can know the depths and the intensity of the heart of God. Who can know? Well, the normal answer would be no human being. But I think we can begin to understand the heart of God when he tells us what's there. And Jesus, in this rare moment, is telling these three. He didn't tell all the disciples. Just these three, he told them he shared with them what was going on. And yet it seems to me that the disciples are always disoriented to the feelings of their Lord. They don't understand Him, or they don't pay attention, or they don't realize what is going on. Do you remember when a bunch of children came to the Lord, and He was delighted to see them, wanted to see them, the disciples wanted to chase them away. They had no... Uh, inkling uh, of what was going on in Jesus' heart. Do you remember when Jesus crossed over into Samaria and he met a woman that was in deep sin and he wanted to save her? And they're saying, what are you doing talking to this woman? They had no idea what was going on in his heart. You know, when Jesus wept at the hopelessness of facing death in Bethany when he was going to the be late to the funeral of Lazarus. His closest friends grieved, believing he had no power to overcome death. They just didn't have an idea of the 
depth and intensity and what was going on in his heart. And the exact same thing had to happen here. The exact same thing. He told them what he was feeling. And it appears they ignored it. Or just couldn't comprehend it. Now, you can choose to be alert to the heart of God. But it takes experience to learn how. You see, as you seek to understand what God is feeling, He may allow you to share in the intensity of heart. When others are around, God may sensitize you to His love for them. When you face the suffering of others, He may share His compassion with you. But only if you remain alert in prayer. Then Jesus may very quietly share His heart with you. Do you remember what Jesus prayed as he was there? He'd gone farther than anybody else into the garden. And he fell down on his face and he prayed, Father, if possible, can this cup pass from me? Now I've heard some people say, you know, Doug, that sounds like weakness to me. That sounds like he wants to find a way out. Well, I'm going to suggest two reasons why he prayed. Did you notice that he made certain that this prayer was heard and recorded. Do you always just pray so that God hears you? Do you remember when we learned or studied Elijah? He'd come before the, He was praying out loud. He wanted the people to hear what he was praying to God. Jesus, I think, wants us to know what he was praying. Why? I'm going to suggest to you two reasons that I came to believe this week. This prayer, purposely offered, first was to display Jesus' humanity. You see, the humanity apart, the flesh part of him, didn't want anything to do with what was going to happen. We have no way, I think, to understand what Jesus knew was going to happen and how terrorizing it would be. Just no way. He wanted us to see that. But there's something more important that he wanted us to see, and I think it's this. He wanted to communicate to all of us that if there was another way to provide for salvation, the Father would have told him. Would the Father lie to Jesus? Jesus said, if there's another way, please, But there was no other way. So we come to understand when people say, no, there's multiple ways to God. If you want to be blunt, you're a liar. And you're lying to God because God said there's only one way. One way to save you. You know, when Noah told them that rain was coming down. And they said, what in the heck is rain? Well, it's water that falls down from the sky. You ever seen water fall down from the sky? No, no, I haven't. Well, then how do you know it's going to... God told me. Oh, God told you. Oh, all right. There's one way to be saved, and that's to go through the door of that ark. And if you don't go through the door of that ark, you are going to die. God makes the rules, not us. He's the creator. We're just the creature. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell us here. There's only one way, and we need to come to understand that. Now, it seems to me in relation to understanding God that so many Christians are satisfied with just a a surface relationship with the Lord. 
You know, Palm Sunday and Easter is a day they might come to church. Or there's a lot of people that say they come to church most every Sunday, but, you know, that's it. Sunday morning, that's God's time, and after that, my time. It's a surface relationship. Then there are those who share the most holiest of moments with Him. See, during that night of holy prayer, there was a varied response. There were a lot of people who were following Jesus, but they didn't know he, even know He was in the garden praying. They were completely indifferent to what was going on that night. Then there was Judas. Judas knew right where Jesus was. But you see, the love of money had taken him the wrong way. The rest of the disciples, that would be eight of them, uh, the rest of the disciples were in the garden, but they were distracted by sleep. And then there were those three, Peter, James, and John. And I'm convinced as Jesus went on, they started a prayer meeting. That prayer meeting didn't last very long. Jesus came back in an hour, and they were sound asleep. He woke them up, came back in another hour, and they were sound asleep. And then the third time, and they were sound asleep. Ultimately, Jesus prayed alone. He went farther than the disciples were willing to go. You know, I want you to think about this a second. When Judas showed up with the posse, did those disciples have any trouble staying awake? No. No, it's just when they had to pray. When I go to pray, and you know, they have the times where you kneel down at church, and you're pewing on, you start praying. The next thing I know, I'm asleep. So I, it's not that I'm not genuine. It's just, man, I run out of things to pray for when I go to bed. I think maybe I just need to move on with that. Uh, let's look at verse 37. Wait, you had a question, Natalie? Susan did. Was that possibly an, a, a satanic attack so that Christ was solely alone? He had nobody to pray with him. Satan constantly uses the flesh. If you want to be with God, sometimes your spirit has to take control of the flesh and deny it. And we're going to see that in a second. Sometimes it's denying the sleep. Sometimes it's denying food. Sometimes it's denying other things. But... Satan's going to use the flesh because it's very powerful to attack you. In fact, let's look in verse 37. I think we'll talk about that. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? I want you to think how he would say that to him. Peter, are you really asleep? Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. You know, what do you say to Jesus if the first time he's woke you up and he comes back again? Are you still asleep? What do you say? I don't know what I'd say. Uh... Excuses don't work with Jesus because he knows they're bogus. And he came a third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So here, I believe at the most important moment of history, 
Our Lord's three closest friends are asleep. Even after being warned several times of the gravity of the hour, you know, we've already been told about our Savior's emotional state prior to the failure on his friend's part. How do you think his face looked when he told them that? I feel like I'm going to die here just right now. He says, I'm terrorized and I'm distressed. And I feel like what is he really feeling would cause him to die? Do you know that you can die of a broken heart? His friends are all going to desert him. One of his best friends is going to deny him. One of his other friends is going to betray him for money. Everyone is going to turn away from him. And he's going to be turned over to the hand of the enemy. And they're going to mock and jeer and enjoy his pain and his suffering with the brutality that they have planned. There comes a time when your spirit must demand supremacy over your flesh. Your spirit will know what your Lord wants you to do, but your flesh will push and struggle for its way. Sometimes sleep or the desire for food needs to be denied. If our Lord tells you to watch and pray, you've got to pray. You know, as Jesus prayed in the garden, he knew that the zenith of his earthly ministry was fastly approaching. Legions of fallen angels and demonic spirits were marshalling together their forces to defeat him. If ever there was a critical time for his closest friends to be upgirding and lifting it up, it was now. Had they not sensed the intensity of his voice when he told them he was greatly troubled and distressed? Hadn't they seen the look on his face and been able to deduct the seriousness of the upcoming event? Had they not? Evidently not. They chose to fall asleep at the most pivotal moment in human history three times. You see, if you belong to him, Jesus will ask you to join with him in what he is doing. He may ask you to watch and pray for an hour. He may ask you to fast and pray for a couple of days. He may ask you to help someone in need. He may ask you to become a part of a ministry or a prayer effort. What are you going to say? If you respond in the affirmative, you may have to deny some of your physical needs and desires. You may have to leave the comfort of your bed or even your home at times. You may even have to sacrifice your safety in order to be where Jesus is. You want to allow physical desires to keep you from loving and responding to your master. That's a question we've got to all face because it's coming for us. Well, we've got to be sensitive to the Spirit too. I went to see my son in Austin because he found a church, me and his, his older sister. And as soon as I got there, he just was rare, rare on me. And I mean, he had me crying, talking about something that happened when he was a little boy. And I said, I'm going home. And so I went out to the car and I felt the Spirit say, Liz, what are you doing? I said, I'm going home. He says, no, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm here to go to church with my son. He says, what are you doing? I said, I'm here to go to church with my son. And I thought, oh, the devil caused the argument. So I went in and I said, you know, I'm just come here to go to church with you and then I want to go home. And my son started in on me and my other daughter said, brother, stop. We're, we come to go to church with you. And as soon as we got to church and started singing and worshiping the Lord, my son's like, oh, Mama, I'm so sorry. And he went and bought us lunch and coffee. And I just thought, 
had I not been sensitive to the spirit and I was just hurt and my feelings, you know, I, I would have just went home and been mad and sad. But I, I realized what the devil was doing. He was keeping us from worshiping together because we were praising that my son had found a church home. Exactly. Well, let's look at verse 43. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Now, you know, it seems strange to me, if we stop there just a second, Judas must not know who he's dealing with very well. Can those people seize Jesus if Jesus doesn't want to be seized? No. They can't seize him. He could look at them and kill them just by a look if he wanted to. He, he knocked them down, but they didn't get it. And after coming, they laid hands on him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. If Jesus is going down, I'm going down with him, Peter would have said to himself. But Jesus turned and said to him, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would a robber? And every day I was with you in the temple teaching, you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And when he said that, all of the disciples fled, ran away. Now, first thing I want you to do is look at a specific spot here. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. Who said that? Jesus did. Here Jesus is faced with this extremely difficult situation where he's facing this catastrophe and it's going to be horrible. What is he relying on for strength? His friends? The word of God. This has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. When you're in a difficult situation, and we're going to see it when we get back to the apostasy, when we finally get to chapter 3, verses 14 and on. And no, I'm not accepting, so let's go on. There are times when in the darkest moments of your life, the only comfort left for you is the Word of God. I can tell you I've been there before. And you have to learn that comfort can come and direction can come from the Word of God. I can remember studying Job incessantly and the life of Elijah and what was going on. And although Jesus faced great injustice and a cruel execution, at that point it may very well have been that his deepest pain came when his friends deserted him and betrayed him. And yet in the darkest moments, he found comfort in the Scriptures. You know, you can read in Matthew chapter 26, kind of about this. But look specifically at 31. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written. He had rehearsed the scriptures in his heart. He knew it so he could tell it to them. And he said these things as he quoted from the Old Testament. And that was his sukkah. That was how he could find his direction and guidance. You see, the Word of God is there to guide us when it seems it's too dark to see the way. How do you know that? Well, what did David say in Psalm 119? 
Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. All the young ambassadors learned that verse when we were young, but it's true. God's word provides direction and light. Now, there will be times when it happens in your life that things that happen in your life will leave you dazed and confused. It happens to everyone. Those in whom you've placed your trust may fail you. Others you thought would be loyal to you will betray you. You may be misunderstood and criticized. It is at these times that you got to turn to the Word of God. At those times, let the Scriptures be your guide and your comfort. So maybe a few final thoughts before we leave the garden here this morning. There are many believers, or many who believe that Jesus endured the most difficult moments in His life, not on the cross, but in the garden. Mark told us that He was greatly distressed and troubled. As he cried out to his father, he was sweating like he was bleeding. I want you to think about this just a second. When I, when I think about that, I remember a time when I was a lot younger, and I was coming back to an apartment in which I lived, and it was raining. And we didn't have umbrella or anything like that. So what you do is you get out of the car and you run. And you run for the door. And as I was running for the Lord, I was wearing some leather sandals, and out they came, and I fell against this Volkswagen, got back up. You don't lay there because you're just going to keep getting drenched, and, and ran up. And as I'm sitting there trying to get the key out to open the door, you know, water is still coming down on my shoulder here and down off my arm. And I looked down, and the license plate on the Volkswagen had slipped my finger across there, and it was just pouring down blood. And I always remember that that's what it was like the way Jesus was sweating. It was so intense. He was so troubled in his heart and so distressed. It was just the sweat was coming out like it was. Now, if you're going to go through a cross of fiction, isn't it very important to get as dehydrated as you can before you go? You see the point I'm making? All of that was part of the preparation for this sacrifice. And we need to, to see that he's doing that and... In his great time of need, his closest friends had drifted off to sleep. They seemed to have no idea how critical this night would be. No idea. Now, in response to all that, all of this terribleness for him, and all of this insensitivity on their part, what did he do? Did he yell at them in anguish and disgust? No, he encouraged them to pray for themselves. If you look carefully in Mark 14, 38, he says to Peter, you need to pray that you're going to make it through here because you're going to be sorely tempted. He wasn't thinking of himself. He was thinking of Peter. Even though he had every right to expect better performance for them, he felt compassion for them and gave them the direction they needed. You see, his sense of responsibility and concern for his disciples overcame his preoccupation with the cross. Even in this dire situation, in the garden, he provided us with the ultimate example of a leader's responsibility. You care for your followers more than you care for yourself. That's the way a real leader does. That's the way our Lord did. 
Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could meet together today. I thank you for preserving these events in Mark's gospel and uh, Peter helping Mark to prepare this gospel and giving him the information he needed. I pray, Father, that you'll help us to come to understand these principles, that you do want to share your heart with us, but we've got to get close to you for that. Help us to understand that you always go before us and you'll be there waiting for us when we get there. Help us to remember that if calamity does come, you have made provision for us. And we just have to trust you. I thank you for how much you love us. Thank you for sacrificing for us. Father, as we go through this week, help us not to forget that sacrifice. Looking forward to next Sunday and the joy of resurrection victory. Pray these things in the name of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.